0: You're listening to the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thavenueproject.com. And it is the 7th Avenue Project. Hello to all you listeners. I'm Robert Polly. Today, The Way We Laugh Now. It's another of our occasional shows on the state of comedy in the USA. And I'm pleased to be welcoming back for his second appearance on the show, Paul Provenza. He's a comedian himself, and uh, he's become something of a, how shall I say, comedy ambassador. Like a lot of comics, Paul knows that however skilled comedians may be when they're performing for the public, they are often at their most creative and most interesting And funniest, when they're just hanging out and talking to each other. So he's taken on the diplomatic mission of sharing that world with the rest of us, us non-comedians. That's what he did in his documentary film, The Aristocrats, and what he did in the book, *Satiristas* with the photographer, Dan Dion, which Paul and Dan and I talked about on this program last year. And that's what Paul is up to again in his new Showtime TV series, The Green Room. We'll be talking about that later in the hour, But uh, first, this being the turn of the new year, with uh, 2010 giving way to 2011, I thought it might be fun to just look back on the recent history of comedy and where it's come over the last decade or so. So Paul and I started out by casting our thoughts back nearly 10 years to that time after the 9-11 attacks, in which comedians were momentarily silenced. In fact, in addition to a temporary suspension of air travel over the U.S., there was also a temporary moratorium on comedy. Here's Paul Provenza.
1: Yeah, it was, um, first of all, so many gigs were canceled. Um, um, you know, club owners in New York were calling each other going, I don't know, you opening this week? I don't know, what are you doing? Are you opening this week? And, like, nobody really knew what to do. Uh, nobody knew what would be the appropriate waiting time. Nobody knew, well, if Broadway shows go up, does that mean that we can open our comedy club? You know, nobody knew. You know, everybody was sort of on hold and kind of stunned. Yeah. Um, so, so there was literally time where comedians were not able to perform very much, just because uh, you know the local home clubs were all kind of shut down. People who were on tour ended up I mean, a lot of people canceled shows. Uh, you know, things dried up. Really, there were a couple of weeks there where there just really wasn't much to be had. But there wasn't much theater to be had. There wasn't much uh, you know dance to be had. There wasn't people didn't know what to do that particular time. Was also um, it was also important because um, we had to process it. We had to process it for ourselves.
0: Well, well, comedy normally, you know, thrives in uh, hard times, uh, you know, and in in times when maybe some other cultural institutions lose their way. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's where comedy steps in. And uh, it seems like it didn't take too long. I mean, even after something as as, as completely mind-boggling as the 9-11 attack for, for comedians to, to find their game again, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so through the decade, it seemed to me that, in a way, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe in a longer historical perspective, uh, this isn't the case, but it just seems to me that looking back now, it seems like comedy has a more important role than ever, um, uh, to the point where now you have... Some comedians, like John Stewart and friends, almost uncomfortably in the role of being more than comedians, of being you know, thought to be important um, commentators, almost like news people, a new kind of news person.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they do have to have – I mean, the, the price they pay for that is they have to have a lot more uh, uh, integrity throughout the stuff that they do. Uh, you know, they can't just – land on the joke. They've got to be very clear that their, their point of view is, is well thought out. You know, they, they started out just making jokes. They started out, they, all they want to do is make people laugh. They want to do something in addition to that. But the foundation is they just, they're comics. They're not politicians. They're not spokespeople. You know, they're, they're, they're comics at the core. And that makes it very, very, very tough. You know, it makes it very tough to um, have that kind of responsibility. Because that's one of the things that P.J. O'Rourke says, actually, in Satiristas. He says the beauty of, of comedy is that we, we have no responsibility whatsoever. We don't have to figure out, you know, how to catch the roaches in the cupboard. We just need to point out that they're there. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so to be a comedian and be in a position of have some sort of responsibility for what you say is a little tough.
0: Yeah, um, and, and you mentioned Satiristas. This is the book that, that you and I have talked about before. That right. Uh, uh, you and Dan Dion uh, put together Dan Dion, the photographer, uh, uh, which is profiles of uh, interviews with a lot of satirically based comedians, uh, and you know a very very um, thoughtful book about the art of comedy, about the cultural place of comedy, which is is what I'm attempting to talk about again today. So um, you said more integrity, uh, you know, when you step out of the role purely of sort of clown or or, or satirist into this this new it seems to me new role and I, you know maybe you can correct me but this new role that at least some comedians like like John Stewart in the daily show crew and maybe Stephen Colbert to some uh, extent have taken they're kind of filling a vacuum uh i think that has been left by uh news commentary
1: um absolutely you know when like when um you know much was made of the pew research institute center that said more People between the ages of 18 and 25 or 18 and 35, whatever it was, uh, get their news from the Daily Show than they do from uh-huh. conventional news sources. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that's you know, the touchstone for a lot of what you're talking about. Um, uh, but that really doesn't surprise me, and the truth is that that's really not such a terrible thing. I mean, on one hand, I feel like, oh, really, you go going to a comic for your information on the world? You know, on one hand, I feel like, yeah, I get the dissonance there. But on the other hand, I feel like, look at what you really got happening there. You know, you have the venerated New York Times, Washington Post, whatever major news outlets you have there uh, in print, and you have... Who knows what the hell's happening on Fox and MSNBC? You know, all the news is so clear. We're very aware now. We're very savvy that it's all spun, manipulated, and, you know, calculated. And in fact, that's one of the manifestos of The Daily Show is to mock how news is presented, not even the news itself. You know, um, this is one of the first times that the news agencies and information outlets have risen to a uh, as significant a subject of satire as the newsmakers themselves. you know um, so having said all of that, if you look at what's happened with all the mainstream media and then you watch the John Stewart Daily show, you know John Stewart will take. Five minutes and do a piece on a story that was buried on page forty-five of the Times, or that never even appeared at beyond the crawl on CNN or something like that. And it may not be necessarily a crucial piece of news, but he will spend five times on it, uh, you know, five minutes on it when nobody even mentioned it. So the truth is that I, who am relatively well informed, probably more so than others, some others, um, I often find news stories. From watching John's show.
0: Mm. And, and I said that he fills a vacuum left by news commentary. I was sort of implying that they're not primarily providing information on The Daily Show and other forums like that, but what they are providing is a kind of um, reflection on the, the day's events that maybe news media used to do, but for one reason or another, people just don't find them doing an adequate job anymore, which is to say... Pointing out what's maybe true, what's absurd, pointing out what's completely idiotic, uh, and maybe doesn't even deserve to be on the news.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, fall, I Here's the interesting thing: is that this is how I sort of synthesize both my feelings about this. That one, I think it's great that you know people do get news from John Stewart Show because it is a lot about how news is spun to you and you can't help but see through it when the daily show keeps giving it to you they're sort of teaching you how to watch news with a you know critical eye uh and so i think that's all great and they do in fact Bring to the fore certain stories that don't go anywhere. They are, in fact, doing the work of serious journalists in that when somebody gets up and says, I never said that, and then on The Daily Show you see seven clips in a row where that person did, in fact, say that. That's the job of real investigative journalism, but that's not happening in investigative journalism. So there's a lot of pluses to that that John Stewart is, is that, you know, significant in terms of that uh, discourse. On the downside, he's a comic, and is that where we should be going for our information and for the way we look at the world? And, you know, yes, maybe he is filling a gap. The real problem is that that gap is there. You know, that's more important. But where I fall in the middle of it is really the balance really comes out when you think of it in these terms. What John Stewart is doing is, are, is more analogous to what Bill O'Reilly is doing than to what uh, Walter Cronkite used to do.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking, questioning my uh, proposition here, my assertion that this is new, I was thinking that maybe we're going back to the days of um, Mark Twain, who was a humorist, maybe not a comedian, but he was also a, a huge truth teller and yes,
1: and he was quoted in columns and he was you know mentioned in news and he came up in in dialogue here and there yes, absolutely there 's a lot of similarities there there 's a very, very big huge difference is the cycle the news cycle has accelerated, <laughs> and as Paul krasner puts it, the rate of acceleration is accelerating, and so there 's no time to really give it thought there 's no time to really work an idea through you know um, Mark Twain would make a statement after months and months of something being present in the discourse that he's had a chance to look at and analyze and come up with the perfect line for. Uh, Now it happens so fast that even Stephen Colbert admits that the biggest problem that they face in terms of both comedy and intellectual integrity is that clock on the wall, as he refers to as the beast on the wall, which is, uh, he said the same thing happens to to him on the Colbert Report. That also happens to Wolf Blitzer on the Situation Room, which is we got to go to air in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. What's the story? What's the take on it? And, you know, people just have to compromise to get it done because the cycle is so fast. Mark Twain could sit and ruminate, with an idea and a concept for months before it ever you know really mattered that it 's been months
0: I would remind uh, uh, people too that he was just a commentator, he was a political activist, he was outspoken on a lot of issues and actually would be branded i 'm pretty sure this quite a liberal even these days. he was very much against u uh, s military. Intervention. Oh, absolutely! And, yeah, uh, he was.
1: Um, he, he politically. He's uh, man. I'm. I'm right on track with him. I love a lot of what. What. What he stood for. Um, uh, you know, Will Rogers, same thing. So yeah. Voice of the Everyman. You know, um, who was the the commentator that everybody quoted with a nice succinct little bumper sticker of the day phrase. Uh, you know, so he functioned in the same way. Uh, but really, that the acceleration of the news cycle is a profoundly different thing. So, you know, when Mark Twain wrote his satire, that was literature. You know, he was writing, uh, he was writing with a, uh, a depth and um, uh, a poetry to it.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you get from John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, the best of them. You know, Bill Maher what you get is is really disposable.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I, I think maybe some of it ascends to the level of poetry in its own way.
1: It does, but it's disposable.
0: What do you think about that in your own material? Uh, do you feel like it's disposable, or do you want it to last for the ages?
1: Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And, um, uh, there are a lot of people who, who are very clear on this, like uh, George Carlin, for example, a great truth-teller, someone who's regarded as a, as a real political commentator, uh, very rarely did current events and, poli- you know, quote-unquote, politics per se. He talked about bigger ideas that are timeless than a particular policy or a particular person in office at any given moment. You know, he talked about ideas of freedom. He talked about ideas of control. He talked about ideas of, you know, manipulation of language and ideas. He talked about all those things. Very rarely did he actually talk about politics. Mm. You know, and so that's that's sort of my philosophy too. I mean, yeah, sure. If I come up with a great joke in the shower about the day's events, I'll do it on stage, but I know it's only gonna last a week
0: uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: You know the real meat of what what I like to think about and what I like to comment on is is bigger stuff than than who's in office and what votes happening today for instance um for instance um so militarism imperialism um Uh, Trying to, you know, the idea of uh, uh, lowest common denominator, which is the only way you can do public policy over 300 million people. Um, Real big picture stuff. It's not about an individual. It's got nothing to do with who's president.
0: Well, those those are those are high aims. Uh, But on the other thing, the other thing comedy does is it searches for for low uh, humor um, in outrageous places. You know, I mean, one thing that's fueled comedy forever is finding outrageous stuff to say, mm-hmm. uh, stuff that offends or stuff that touches a nerve, uh, whether it's scatological or sexual. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, I don't know how many people know this, but Mark Twain did that, too. Uh-huh. There's a piece he did that's very no- well known to Twain scholars, but maybe not to the general public. Are, are you aware of it? Um, it's this little satire he wrote when he was pretty young. Uh took place in... Um, Queen Elizabeth's Court,
1: the first Elizabeth, of course.
0: Uh-huh. And it's full of fart jokes and sex jokes and... Yeah, obscenity. yeah, yeah I am familiar with it. Yeah. And I
1: always... Um, uh, my reference for that, whenever anybody raises that kind of thing about the base nature of modern comedy and all that sort of stuff, whatever, is, uh, you know, Chaucer.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: You know, um, there's a scene in every Shakespeare play <laughs> that's essentially <laughs> nothing but d- jokes and fart jokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, though, that comedy had pushed it pretty far... Uh, by the end of the '60s and '70s, and, and, and I'm wondering if, if comedians like yourself have had to sort of search for what, what's left, you know, that's that's really raw, that's really, um, you know, gonna gonna freak some people out.
1: Well, that's the thing is, is, is uh, and again, you know, it's a big country, 300 million people. Uh, uh, there's room on the shelf for everybody, and there's a lot. You know, even as we're having this conversation, it's a little bit uh, inappropriate. Really, without mentioning that as big as John Stewart, Bill Maher, and Stephen Colbert are individually, let alone whatever they represent collectively, they're nothing compared to Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not saying I'm actually not saying that to be funny. I mean that's just a fact. You know? That's not you know, that's that's still whatever that is, that to people like you and I who look at that kind of stuff and for whom that's kind of a part of our lives, you know, that seems significant and, and um you know, that those three comedians doing that kind of stuff can all be as big as they are at one time. I really can't recall that happening, but no matter what it is, it's still insignificant in terms of the big picture. I mean, if you combine all the viewers of, of Bill Maher, Stephen Colbert, and John Stewart, you know, it, it's barely even significant in terms of television audiences.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, although it, it's not just a matter of, of the, the actual uh, viewing audience at any given time. It's how much the pieces reverberate through the culture, and they do reverberate, so that, you know, they're, they're seen millions of times on YouTube, and people talk about them. And Absolutely. You know. but,
1: but once again, that's all, you know preaching of a converted.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, speaking of high and low, I think you, and I wanted to, to credit some of the work you've been doing uh, in your movie, the movie you directed with Penn Gillette, the documentary The Aristocrats. Uh-huh. I consider that a, a, a significant milestone in, in comedy in, in the uh, last decade. And one thing it did was uh, I, I thought that it brought together some of the highest and lowest kinds of ideas uh, in, in, a, in a remarkable way. Um, Yes,
1: uh, well, I appreciate those kind words, by the way, Uh, but yeah, that's by by design, really. Um, I mean, there is is the basic uh, um, sort of manifesto of really good comedy, which is to burst the bubbles of pretension and, um, you know, to put it in the vernacular... Everybody stinks.
0: <laughs> well, the uh, the movie for those who haven't seen it or heard about it, which is kind of hard to believe, but maybe they're out there, uh, was about. It's right
1: next to Twain's piece, actually. The Twain scholars know about.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it's very much in the tradition, but it was a documentary about a joke that comedians, for quite a long time, have been telling among themselves, but not so much on stage. That attempts to be as obscene as possible. There's a standard uh, sort of setup, set and then there's a standard punchline. But in between. You guys, you comedians, uh, are allowed to improvise and get as um, as nasty as you can possibly get
1: uh, actually actually that's sort of the rule of the game as to how nasty can you get is the key
0: and, and what i don't know how many people experience it this way and, and by the way, this is a movie that 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 split the audience down the middle. Some people were appalled and outraged or or dumbstruck and and then others, like the audience I saw it with uh, you know pretty much were in hysterics from beginning to end but my my reaction was that within moments the obscenity completely wore off in terms of any kind of outrage because the material was so extreme it sort of faded into the background like 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 a noise and what i what i got to see was form instead how comedians manage a story how they tell a story how they time You know certain lines, how they build to certain, you know,
1: sort of, and how radically different each individual approaches that. Absolutely, absolutely. And
0: so the art of comedy was displayed by taking this super, you know, base humor uh, and letting people play with it. the The art was exposed in a way that I I don't think I'd ever seen before.
1: Um, Well, I'm I'm glad you had that reaction because that was all. That's all what we tried to do. (laughs) You know, the original uh, um, conceit behind it was uh, jazz. You know that you always get to see. Uh, uh, yeah. There, are, there are certain numbers that are sort of that are jazz standards. That it almost becomes when somebody becomes prominent, it almost becomes de rigueur that they give it. They give this particular standard their version. You know, uh, and you never get to see that with comedy. And um, the similarities between jazz and comedy are probably the closest than between comedy and any other art form, really. Yeah, yeah. And no. so, um, so we looked. For that was the, that was the premise the premise uh, uh, that premise of you know let 's see where the joke and the individual become significant who 's telling the joke it 's the singer, not the song it 's the jazz artist, not the you know melody uh, that was the original premise, and then when we were thinking about a joke that would serve that function, it, the aristocrats was the obvious choice. It wasn't chosen because it's the filthiest joke in the world, but when we realized that the aristocrats was the perfect joke for this, it just gave us uh, sort of. An, we had an expectation that it would operate on a lot other levels as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in answer to my um, query about you know searching for more and more stuff to expose, which comedy has always done, you know, I mean, maybe back in the fifties it was all about marriage or something, you know, in the sixties and seventies it became about race and sex. Um, you found, I think, a, a new uh, pasture to graze in, which is about comedy itself. You know.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of um, it, it's you know how postmodern can get so post that yeah. it becomes modern again. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like post post postmodern. It's sort of reconstructing deconstruction. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Because what what I've been doing in the aristocrats and in satirists is, and I think to a large degree, I think it's. Pr- Pretty much the case with The Green Room as well, my series on Showtime, uh, is deconstructing comedy and reconstructing it to create some different form out of all those elements.
0: Mm-hmm. The Green Room is this uh, series that you, um, you just began this past year on, on Showtime, uh, six episodes to, to, to start out uh, this past season.
1: And, and we're in pre-production right now on uh, the second season.
0: Uh, how many episodes?
1: Six episodes. Again. Six
0: episodes. Uh, they're each half hour, and um, why don't you describe the setup?
1: Uh, well, you know, let me just backtrack a little bit. I mean, comedy is a really, really complex and rich art form, and most people don't think of it that way. Most people think of it as pop culture fluff or escapist or whatever. But just like there's top forty music, there's top forty comedy. Just like there's cover bands and bars that are just competent but aren't doing anything new or interesting or anything about the art form other than replicating it there's the equivalent of comedians in that arena as well. But there are also those artists out there in comedy who are, you know, Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, Elvis Presley and the Beatles and Michael Jackson and people who are doing powerful stuff uh, and making a difference and changing things. Uh, and the thing about that this form and the thing about the sort of mindset of people who look at the world through critical eyes who – Look underneath the surface of things. The people who are somehow turning their alienation into a connection um, is an unbelievable community of people and an unbelievable mindset in which to thrive. And when I became a part of that community at a very young age, sixteen, seventeen, I felt like, oh my god, I can't believe there are all these people. I thought I was alone, you know. And I found that some of the most extraordinary times. Of my life were spent with comedians off stage we really get we 're all on the same page, and we really get to talk about things without social conventions without any of the we can we can argue tooth and nail, and it stays funny. I just thought it was an extraordinary experience, and I loved it and it changed my life and so at this point in, in my career i 've decided that I want to give something back to comedy, and part of that is is uh, Rather than tell people what a great art form this is and tell them about what it was that, that that gets so many people excited when they connect to it, I wanted to show them. So I tried to recreate what it's been like hanging out with comedians my whole life. And uh, so the show is called The Green Room, and I recreate a green room environment. The audience is all people who are normally found in green rooms—other comedians, writers, musicians, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, the comedians are completely comfortable. Uh, it, we, shot, we shoot in such a way that's, that's unlike any television show. Uh, there's no lock-offs. There's no one-shot, two-shot. There's no form. There's no structure to the show. It is literally comedy jazz. I just put groups of people together that I think will be really, really interesting to have conversations with, and we just let it flow, literally like jazz. So what I'm getting to do is I'm getting to take these great comedians... If They were jazz artists, I'd go, "You know I would love to hear this person play with this person i 'd love to hear this cat play with that cat and that cat play with this cat. Well, I get to do that with comedy so that 's really what the green room is and and if you you watch it i 'm really pleased that a lot of people have gotten some um you know really rich stuff out of it it's 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 having uh, some interesting impacts on a, a lot of people who are uh, who are getting hooked into it. Because you really do learn that there are other ways to see the world. You really do learn that you're not the only one who thinks this way. And you really do see that. You know what? You can actually disagree with somebody, make real serious, hard points, and never stop laughing.
0: Well, I'll play an example of a moment like that from the past season. And I should say that you get these very interesting groups of four or five comedians along with yourself sitting in the middle of this room talking about both the art of comedy or the craft of comedy, the business of comedy, and then about real-life issues. Yeah, we
1: actually talk about whatever comes up.
0: Whatever comes up. I mean, it,
1: it quite literally is exactly what I say. It is. There's no, no, no gimmick, no BS here. It literally, there is no format. Comedians have no idea what we're going to talk about. There's no agenda. Nobody's there to plug any books or anything. So it really truly is, hey, four funny people are going to get together. I'm just going to jam. We're just going to talk and see how funny we can be.
0: Well, just to illustrate that point, um, I thought I'd play just a little clip from one of the shows where you gathered um, Paul Mooney, uh, Rain Pryor, the daughter of Richard Pryor, Bobby Slayton, Jim Jeffries, and, of course, you. Uh, And we're going to listen to a part where um, Paul Mooney's telling a story. He he wrote for Richard Pryor, uh, and uh, he knew Rain Pryor when she was just a baby, and he was telling a story about uh, something that happened when she was quite young. So we're going to listen to him, and then uh, we'll hear you come in, and, and start talking with Paul Mooney about the issue of race.
2: I was going to tell you a story about Richard, which she doesn't even know. Uh oh. Oh really? Yeah. She was a baby. I mean, baby, baby. And Richard and her mother were having fights, and I used to call the house they lived in, lived around the corner for me, the house of pain. <laughs> and so they had got into a battle, and her mother brought the baby to me, and I kept rain for about Aww. three days. And she was a baby, baby. She doesn't even know that. That story is really funny, Paul. No, 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 no. That, that was a serious. That was a serious. No, all the white folks laughed. That's good. When you... and you're... You're...
1: Well, now, wait a minute How did that become racist? How yeah. did that become racist?
2: Because they did. Because they all laughed. But, but... No. When Did he you said, laugh? When he was, Did you laugh when he said that was funny, Paul? Did you laugh? Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know what you know what's making me sick with you acting like that? No, you know what, you know what makes me sick? What? Because you can't remember when it was the angry black man? Yes. You're taking that. You're not to let me be angry. Because you being, you being, no, you being, okay, okay, hang on, on, hopping around, being angry. That's why they do it in comics. Liar. Let me go ahead.
0: So, so that was a a moment from one of this past season's episodes of uh, the green room with you, Paul, and uh, a bunch of comics, just talking about whatever comes to mind. And what came to mind in that moment was race. Paul Mooney is a very interesting figure. I mean, he's very funny, and he's got a real edge. And you, I mean, I for one is someone who watches him. Never know when he's just cracking a joke or when he's really pissed off. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment there where he was like saying to you, like, "You won't even let me have anger. You're already making it funny." You know. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> which is which is really great. I mean, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. You know, and, and right or wrong. It's just an interesting thought. And that's one of the things that when comedians get together and talk about all this stuff, really, uh, one of the things that's great is because, uh, because everybody's so naturally funny, you know, something funny is going to come along. And it takes a lot of pressure off of things, but it also enables people to really speak the truth because they're not speaking the truth in a hurtful way. Um, uh, and the other thing is that we don't really, like if you notice in, in any argument that you, that you see snippets of on the green room, uh, it doesn't matter who "quote unquote" wins the argument.
0: Let's uh, let's play another argument. I, I tend to like the arguments. The, the combination or the conjunction of humor and um, and uh, tension is just like irresistible. And you allow it to happen on this show, which is is a really cool thing. Now, this is one where you had, among other guests, uh, Tommy Smothers and Penn Gillette. And um, Tommy, I think it's fair to say, is an old fashioned liberal. Uh, you know, going back to his work in the sixties when, yeah, when he
1: hasn't softened at all
0: exactly and uh... you know he and dick on their show were very much dissidents who ultimately of course got their their contract canceled
1: yeah uh, And they were a trojan horse in the first place
0: very much so they had a lot of people on and a lot of ideas on that they were sneaking in there and defying the network Um and then pendulet uh, i think bills himself as a libertarian who i think equally mocks liberals and conservatives and um they had this little confrontation in the middle of your show, and I want to play a bit of it. I can't believe
2: you're so intelligent, and you follow this stuff, and you go on there, and you sit with Glenn Beck and agree with that bull**** you know, that you're I've listening never, to. What I've the never f*** agreed, happened to you along the I've way? Never, the drugs, <laughs> no drugs. Uh, I've never Dude. agreed with Glenn Beck yes, on you, what, anything that I didn't agree with him on. Well, yeah, but you, you sat there and agreed with him. No, I have been no, watching you on, for a long time on that show. Really, what, what did I say that you don't think is true? Just about everything. <laughs> no, can you give me? I mean, was there one example? Oh, you're really? going to test my memory. You know the difference between Alzheimer's and amnesia? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I because uh, I know you're a free spirit. I just. Uh, it was always, I was so shocked because uh, you've got that little edge you're such a, uh, i'm such a fan I forgot I'm pissed off at
0: you.) <laughs> so that was Tommy Smothers and Pen Gillette on the Green Room, the show by Paul Prevenza, my guest, uh, that uh, airs on Showtime. it's been renewed for a second season coming up in 2011, um, and we just heard this this confrontation that ensued between Tommy Smothers and Gillette. Paul, Paul, why don't you talk a little bit about that moment?
1: yeah um uh, I'd love that because it was uh it was actually really full of affection I mean Tommy and Penn have a great relationship' cause they're one of, they're pretty much the two biggest teams in show business well at at that point anyway, at least you know Smothers Brothers iconic, and Penn and Teller you know still currently selling out all the time at the rio in vegas um and teams are a very odd thing, so they have an interesting relationship they can talk to each other about the phenomenon of Professional team like that uh-huh. i 've known each other for a long time, so there 's a lot of affection and respect between that, but neither one of them was um, i mean they, they both wanted to defend their position, you know, and um, the conversation continued long after we stopped rolling, and uh, a couple of days later, Penn did a video blog, very personal and heartfelt uh, if you do if listeners do a Google search, Penn Gillette and getting yelled at by one of my heroes. You'll see this blog, which goes on for about 10 minutes, which is Penn grappling with this idea that Tommy uh, confronted him with. You know, does it say something to go on a show, you know, like Glenn Beck's? Are you giving him credibility? Are you saying, because I've chosen to come on this show, any celebrity I have, uh, you you deserve uh, profiting from? All those kinds of questions. And Penn really, really grapples with it. Uh, and uh, has a very, very interesting perspective on it, but quite literally for ten minutes, you watch him grappling with this in a very emotional state because he idolizes Tommy Smothers and Tommy Smothers called him out on something, and it 's not an easy answer and I thought that was really uh, that, that was a very proud moment for me because what we did on what the uninitiated think is just a comedy talk show suddenly resonated, you know, uh, to the people on the show. A very similar thing happened on the show with Bob Saget and Roseanne Barr and Patrice O'Neill and Sandra Bernhardt, um, where I was kidding around and I was uh, giving Bob uh, some flack for Full House, which all his comedy friends do at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, you went and did that show and now you're a gajillionaire, but we're not going to let you forget that you Mm -hmm. went and did that show. Mm -hmm. And um, it became a real genuine conversation, and for the first time that i'm aware of publicly bob really opened up his heart and talked about how he made the decision to do that show, why he made the decision to do that show and how he thinks it was the right decision and all of a sudden it was a life lesson about, you know, going with the flow, going through the doors that open, what how you determine what your values are, what's important, what's not important, you know, what do you what you do when you have a family to take care of, all that sort of stuff. And it became a real rich human story that just came out of a joke about, you know, making fun of Bob for doing Full House. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really what goes on in green rooms. That's the truth of it. It's real conversation. It's just with funny people, the conversation tends to get funny.
0: You know, it, it may be bad form for me to move the spotlight away from the green room for just a second to to another show. Can I do that? Uh, feel free. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I would have done it even if you said no. Depends uh, on the show, though. you are okay. suckering me in here. Well, the show is, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. The show is... Um,
1: Louis, Louis, yes, Louis C.K.'s Fantastic new show. show. I'm a huge fan of that show.
0: Um, and he um, he also has some sort of dramatized behind the scenes exchanges among characters playing comedians who are themselves acted by comedians. It's not the same as the Green Room because it is dramatized because it is written. I assume. Or yeah, it,
1: it's a scripted show. Yeah, it's but it's also show. born of that very very. Um, revelatory personal experience because a big part of Louis' show also involves his his children and his relationships and trying to do the kind of stand-up work he does and have that reality as well and be a good father and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, it's really, really a very personal show. And really, really, probably the most truthful show about comedy that I've ever seen. Um, and very idiosyncratic things that don't make any sense unless you understand comedians. Uh, the season closer, last season it's a fantastic show. I can't re- recommend it highly enough. The season closer, he ends up going out for pancakes with his kids at 3, 4 in the morning. Uh, you know, he comes home late at night, and the kids are awake, and they say they want to go out to, for breakfast. And he takes them out for breakfast at 3, 4 in the morning. It's it just an odd... Quirky little scene that's full of so much love and understanding, and these kids so clearly are having a relationship with their father they can only have because their father's a comedian, you know, uh, who goes out for breakfast at three in the morning, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just it's just so rich and so authentic. Uh, the first or second episode is a brilliant conversation. They're playing cards. It's Nick DePaulo, Rick Chrome, um, uh, I forget who else, and and um, and Louis CK. Uh, and they're talking about a gay joke. And Rick Rome, who actually is a gay comedian in life, um, is playing the guy who talks about what it's like to be a gay guy and hear these jokes.
0: Well, you read my mind because I want to play that clip. That's become a, a pretty famous scene, and it is a bit like a green room scene. I mean, a scene from your show or a scene uh, you know, from an actual green room because it is a bunch of guys who are entertainers in comics. Uh, talking among themselves they're playing cards and the um, subject of of gay jokes of the use of the word faggot by comedians comes up and so let's just listen to a little exchange between Louis C.K. and Rick Crome Rick Crome um, who is you say he's gay in real life and he's playing a, a gay character uh, and they're talking a bit about the use of the word faggot uh, in, in Louis act okay. Rick does
2: it offend you when I say that word? what word? hello? no faggot yeah does it bother you when he says the word faggot (laughs) no it bothers me when
0: you say it because you mean it yeah but really it's like as a comedian and a, a gay guy you're the only gay comic i know do you think i shouldn't be using that word on stage
2: i think you should use whatever word you want uh and when you use it on stage i can see it's funny and i don't care but are you interested to know what it might mean to to gay men yeah i am interested well the word faggot really means a bundle of sticks used for kindling in a fire. Now, in the Middle Ages, when they used to burn people they thought were witches, they used to burn homosexuals, too. And they used to burn the witches at a stake, but they thought the homosexuals were too low and disgusting to be given a stake to be burned on. So they used to just throw them in with the kindling, with the other faggots. So that's how you get flaming faggots. So what you're saying is gay people are a good alternative fuel source. (laughs) So they get the term diesel dyke. (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead. You might want to know that every gay man in America has probably had that word shouted at them when they're being beaten up. Sometimes many times. Sometimes by a lot of people all at once. So when you say it, it kind of brings that all back up. But, you know, by all means, use it, get your laughs, but, you know, now you know what it means.
0: So, so Paul, that um, that scene from, from the show Louis with Louis C.K., you know, it seems like you and he are very much... Um, of the same spirit, in a way.
1: I consider that a tremendous compliment, so thank you for that. <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, the thing that I love about Louis is it it is it is truth-telling, and it's not necessarily a truth-telling that you have to agree with. It's a truth as he experiences it or as he sees it. And um, everything he does, no matter how hard it is, and I mean, he's a fantastic comedian and he does power pack and punch an audience um, um but it's just pure vulnerability 100 percent of the time even with that kind of strong performance because it, it is the truth and he's not afraid to look like the idiot if it's what he believes and he knows that it's crazy to believe uh, he's just his work is just so honest and so real and he's taken that into this uh, series as well which i think is magnificent
0: one of the the, the fine lines he walks in that scene is that um it starts out with these guys really just joking okay so there's gay jokes they're telling them even with their gay friend sitting right there who who comes back at them with jokes too and it stays in the it stays in this this world of um you know joke telling for a little while and then it it, it comes to this this moment where Rick Chrome, you know, just in, gently informs him of also the kind of, you know, ex- extreme hatred that gay people have had to, to live with. Right. And, and reminds him of that. And then it goes back to jokes again. And, and the real fine line there is that it could have been preachy.
1: You know, I, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I didn't ask Louis about this, but it wouldn't surprise me if that, in fact, was a real conversation that happened. Because you see, you know, um, Rick Crome. Uh, is not upset or angry about the jokes. He plays along with it, and he mm-hmm. throws a few of his own in. Yep. And it's only when they start to get really serious, like, you know what, I never thought about that. What, is it really, what does that mean to you when you hear that word? Mm-hmm. And and he tells them. And he doesn't tell them, going, you're a bad person, or, you know, F you for doing that. He just goes, here's the facts. Here's how it is. Here's what that word means to a lot of people. And you guys do with that information what you will.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, that's, for television, to not teach a moral lesson at that point (laughs) is rare and wonderful.
0: Well, he slips one in, sort of. He does.
1: Well, yes, but you you decide. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that's what it's like for every comedian. That's why it's so truthful about what it's like for, com- uh, for comedians. Because we do all, any any comedian who's sentient and, and compassionate and has any sort of manifesto in their work, they're really working as artists as opposed to people just trying to sell CDs and tell jokes and get booked and sell their egos. Uh, the comedians who really, really value the art form and try to work within the art form to do something meaningful and human and real, all have to face those kinds of questions and you it's really shocking i don't think people understand the conversations that Comedians have either with themselves or with each other uh, about a simple joke, just a simple joke to sit back and parse it and go, "Who's the victim in that joke? Am I making a mistake here? Am, am I saying something I don't mean to say? Is somebody going to be victimized in this in this story that I don't want to be victimized? What you know, are people going to get this the way I mean it? And you know how um, the there's the old adage, I I believe it's just uh, an aphorism. I don't know if it's true that you know Eskimos have hundreds of words for snow.
0: Well, I, and, I interviewed a linguist who's said it's it's not true
1: uh, yeah i that's so why I, I thought it might not be true but but um i'm going to go with that as a premise anyway okay uh and say that the same is true for comedians with laughs there uh, are an infinite variety of laughs yeah and when you do this enough you can really sense and really understand the difference between them and there have been countless times where i've been doing something and the laugh just isn't the laugh that i want
0: what kind of laugh is it that makes you uncomfortable
1: The best way to explain this to you is, again, what I try to do in everything, which is show and not tell. I'm going to give you an example of a joke that I often use to drive this home. Uh, And this isn't a joke I wrote. It's a joke that I found on the Internet, and I just tweaked it a little bit. But um, to me, it's a fascinating joke, and I'll explain why afterwards. But the joke is, why do so many black men have nightmares when they sleep? Because the last one who had a dream got shot in the head. Okay, now the, when you hear the laugh in a room full of people with that joke, uh, I just go, "That's the example. That's an example of what I mean." What does that laugh mean? Everybody's laugh is different in that joke, or it just means because the joke, really, if you think about it, that joke has all the right values. That joke is about, you know, uh, it's about, you know, the keeping the black man down it's about you know uh, black oppression it's about uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of things that are healthy values to look at but it feels like an offensive joke it feels like are you making fun of martin luther king are you saying oh, all black people have nightmares it just it feels like a wrong joke but it, all its values are actually really strong uh, really strong
0: uh, so the wrong kind of laugh, there. I'm guessing you're saying would be maybe the the occasional racist who just thinks it's funny. Yeah, that you know in a kind of uh, abusive way. I yeah, mean,
1: or just like, oh, here's a great joke I can tell my friends who always make jokes about black people. Oh, but really, okay. it's not about that. That yeah. that, that joke is a, a joke that's really, really goes up against the white power structure. That's what that joke is about. So, and, and there are a million variables as to as, as to what informs the nuances of a joke, who's telling it, how you tell it, what it's, what it's between, the context, what happened in the world that day. You know, all those things affect all that stuff differently. My point is that when people sit around, when comedians sit around and have the kinds of conversation that you saw in Louis with Rick Crome about the word faggot and comedians' acts and stuff, that, that, that's the tip of the iceberg. Every line, every joke, a, a real artist working in comedy parses all of that down to just every possible variation to look at what is really going on here. And you can hear in the laughs, are they really understanding this joke or are they laughing at something else? And a lot of comedians will um, do the opposite, which is where they'll rely on some sort of a performance trick to make something work. And other comedians can sit in the audience, hear that laugh and go, oh, he just tricked them. That was just a magic trick. That joke's, mm. that joke's not what's getting that laugh.
0: It, what is getting the laugh? What's, what's, for example, what... A
1: performance element, pushing a word, uh, choosing a word, mm. uh, a particular word that's funny more so than, an, than uh, another word that might have more integrity with the idea that you're heading towards, uh, rhythm, uh, a million things, a million things. In fact, uh, um, uh, Fred Stoller, a brilliant comedian who uh, um, for quite some time was writing monologue for Jerry Seinfeld on uh, on Seinfeld, Uh, His name is Fred Stoller, and he's terrific, and he used to do a thing to crack other comedians up whenever he thought the audience was really stupid. (laughs) He would play to the back of the house, the comedians in the back of the house, and he would do what he called his non-jokes, things that sounded and felt like jokes, but absolutely weren't. You know, he'd get a nice rhythm going, and then he would slip one in, and it was his way of saying to the comedians in the back of the house, these people are sheep. Can you think of any? Yeah, yeah. He used to say things like, uh, uh, "Man, I grew up in a really tough neighborhood. The high school I went to was so tough. The principal was Swedish, and the crowd would laugh." He was this girl was so fat, I didn't know whether to take her to a Met game or a Yankee. No, I didn't know whether to take her out for dinner or to a Yankees game, and the crowd would laugh. And it's complete data. Is there's absolutely no joke there. But you know, he knew that they were buying into the rhythm, they were buying into the pace, they were buying into the context, and they were just going with it. And it was his way of you know, of just sort of mocking them for that.
0: Oh, man. Uh, you know, I, I was starting to laugh at just the non-sequitur of yeah, a Swedish. Well, very,
1: yeah, they are really funny. Yeah. But the audience wasn't laughing at them <laughs> as non-sequiturs. The audience <laughs> was laughing at them because it sure sounded like jokes.
0: <laughs> well, that's part of the beauty of it, man. It I, works, know, I know, I it know. It does work on the level of delivery. It works on the level of content. Yeah. It works on the level of surprise. Uh, yeah, I
1: mean, you know, you have to remember that, that you know, you look at the masters like George Carlin, look at Chris Rock, who's just an extraordinary performer. You know, look at Richard Pryor, look at, look at people who really, they're great performers and they have great, great substantive material. Um, what's really interesting about them is they're such good performers that they don't have to have such substantive material. You know, I watched Tracy Morgan, who I think is one of the most phenomenal performers I've ever seen in comedy. I mean, he's like almost, uh, you know, Eddie uh, Eddie Murphy-esque in terms of just charisma and skill, and every little tiny little character he throws into the middle of a bit is so well, you know, crafted, and just he's he's tremendously gifted. The material he chooses to do in his stand-up is completely insubstantial, but his performance is so extraordinary that he makes a lot of stuff work. And people like Pryor, Carlin, Chris Rock, you know, the greats who who could easily get away with that, had the personal integrity and in the artistic manifestos to not just rest on what they could make work,
0: ah. to really
1: keep pushing it so that it's, it's mm. across the board by any index, material, performance, content, ideas, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's at the top level across the board.
0: Now, now you um, sort of implied that all comics, or, or the great majority of them, you know, sort of struggle with the moral implications of their jokes uh, to the degree that you do that, you know, that they're that circumspect. Uh I had the impression that some guys just go out and shoot from the hip and, and trust their instincts completely and maybe don't, don't think it over that much. Am I wrong about that?
1: No, you're not wrong about that. That's part of, you know, that's part of what happens with experience and, 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 and stage time and, and um, growth as an artist and as a performer. Uh, absolutely. It becomes second nature. It becomes, uh, you know, you sort of do all that math in your head. Uh, but there are times where that conversation does take place, and there are times where you're not quite sure. There are times where shooting from the hip is maybe not the best thing, or you shot from the hip, it worked, but you're not really quite sure if you hit the right targets, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but as time goes on, yeah, people come. You, you know, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, they didn't have to remind themselves of their manifesto. Yeah. In fact, they probably never even articulated it.
0: Yeah. Have you in your career ever told jokes that after the fact you thought, I'm really sorry I told that one?
1: Oh, yeah, sure, sure, absolutely.
0: Uh, can you remember any?
1: Um, <laughs> not really, but I can tell you one. No, not really. Um, um, I'm trying to think. I'm not, I'm not trying to dodge it. I'm just trying to think. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but I know what's happened. Uh, I mean, uh, really good comedians drop really good material all the time because they just can't quite get it to mean what they want it to mean or the Mm. audience is enjoying it too much for the wrong reason and it gets in the way of 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 what they really care about um uh just like you know painters probably toss aside stuff that you'd love to you know you think is great work and they just think it isn't quite what they want so they just paint over it you know that happens a lot
0: well that's that's pretty impressive if um you know you can get the laughs. You know you could get the standing ovation, and you decide to to junk the joke because it doesn't live up to your own standards. Uh, I know there are comedians out there who don't have such high standards, uh, but
1: um, well, again, like I said, you know, there's, it it there's bar bands, there's top forty, <laughs> there's you know avant garde. <laughs> you know, uh, you can't forget that that's that's what we're dealing with because I I, I want to keep mentioning that because I, I I I have to make it clear that this is not universal. Oh, for
0: sure. I you know? know. I know. Uh, because I because
1: I'm, I'm always afraid that somebody will hear me talking about comedy and then they'll go, "What are you talking about?" I was at the you know the Dayton, <laughs> Ohio Chuckle Hut, and all I saw was racism and sexism and homophobia and old jokes. Yeah. You know, so I want to make it clear that I know that's out there, but that's just not the ones we choose to talk about. Well, you know, a lot. Some comedians like to go and trash other comedians. Uh, I prefer to champion the good ones rather than slam the bad ones. Let the good again show, not tell. Instead of tell somebody uh, why somebody is really not a great comedian, I'll show you who really is a good great comedian.
0: So, um, getting back to to your work in particular, uh, you're getting ready for a second season of the Green Room. Have you, you started shooting yet?
1: Uh, no, we start shooting in January. And uh, we're looking, uh, uh, we've already committed, uh, let's see, we have uh, Gary Shandling, Ray Romano. Oh,
0: great, great. uh,
1: Gary Shandling, Ray Romano, Louis Black, Ron White, Joe Rogan, Tommy Chong, Judd Apatow, Richard Lewis, Margaret Cho, uh, Richard Belzer, Kathy Griffin, Dana Gould, Janine Garofalo, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell. uh, Shall I go on?
0: Uh, Yeah, go on, go on.
1: Uh, Rick Shapiro. Uh, Kathleen Madigan, Jeffrey Ross, uh, Jamie Kilstein.
0: Do, do you? Uh, I'm going to jump in and ask do you. Do you plan the mixes, the, the 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 combinations that you put together for each individual show in order to create some sparks? Do you have some idea that putting this guy with this guy?
1: Yeah, it's all about the combinations. In fact, if 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 I've got a combination together and somebody cancels, I, I have to scrap the whole show unless I can recombine people because it is all about that. It's all about who's together again just like putting together jazz artists you know you don't want to put somebody together who's going to clash who isn't going to just kind of isn't the same kind of musician doesn't work the same way might not have his strengths or her strengths may not be in that particular direction you know so yes it's all about the combinations so that's really that's where my creativity gets you know comes in here
0: are there some people you've sort of always wanted to like get together in the same room uh and, and you're finally getting a chance to do that?
1: Uh, yeah, well, on uh, last season, uh, having Jonathan Winters and Rick Overton and Robert Klein was a dream of mine.
0: Uh, I know Robert Klein idolized Jonathan Winters. Exactly. I, I learned that from your book. Um, but uh, Rick Overton also, maybe?
1: Uh, Rick Overton is actually probably the closest uh, of... Uh, comedians working today to Jonathan's true improvisational jazz nature.
0: uh uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. And Jonathan is now 83,
1: 84. 84 and he's yeah. still funny. Yeah, man. He's Jonathan Winters. <laughs> Even if he wasn't funny, he's Jonathan Winters. Even I want to sit in room with him.
0: <laughs> A lot of people used to compare Robin Williams to Jonathan Winters, you know. Uh, you know, in, in the old days, they'd uh, say he's like the second coming of Jonathan Winters. Yeah,
1: well, if you, I mean, really, and, and Rob, I'm not speaking out of it. So Robin was going to do this new season, by the way, of Green Room, but um, there was a sketching conflict and he couldn't make it. Ah. But um, uh, Robin admits that he basically, you know, he's Jonathan on speed.
0: Uh-huh, exactly. Yeah, or cocaine or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> whatever Robin was into. Um, but yeah, that, that, that sounds fantastic. Um, I only wish it was an hour long rather than a half hour per episode.
1: Uh, well, thank you. From your lips to the head of Showtime's ears. Uh,
0: seriously, because you guys have to do some draconian editing.
1: Um, yeah, but you know, I'm editing with uh, Emery Emery and Jesse Marion, uh, who got up to speed and brought so much to it. She's brilliant. Uh, but Emery Emery, I edited The Aristocrats with. So, uh, Ah. you know, we had a real sort of sensibility that I wanted to, you know, continue into the show. Um, You know, it's shot all handheld, and we basically shoot it like an indie film. Yeah. You know, shoot it like a TV TV show. Yeah. And um, uh, the editing, really, mostly what we do is just pull up the gaps, really, because it's a very casual conversation. Right. uh, Mostly we just pull out the gaps because all the meat is so clear. It's so clear what's juicy. We only shoot for about an hour, so... Uh,
0: okay, um, so it's not as bad as I thought. I, I thought I might be missing out on all kinds of fantastic
1: stuff. Uh, some, <laughs> some, you know, some shows went a little bit longer, and some shows we kind of had to make a choice between, you know, this hunk of time or that hunk of time. You know, there'll be some of it. Uh, um, certainly when we when, when we do release DVDs, there'll be all that stuff added in. But it's not that big a challenge, really, to edit them. It, it, it's really... Um, if you... If you Look at it as conventional television. It's impossible to edit. If you look at it as editing jazz, mm-hmm. it's a breeze. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, jazz and, and comedy, you know, they used to, in the old days, and maybe to some extent still, be in the same damn club. I mean, think about the, the famous clubs in San Francisco, the Hungry it, Eye. You know, That's
1: right. That's the interesting thing about the modern former stand-up, is it actually came up with jazz and, and swing and bebop. Uh, you know the uh, the first stand-up comedians really were you know basically working in in bebop clubs and and uh, and uh, poetry houses and stuff like that. That's really where the form went from burlesque into stand-up. Lenny Bruce, of course, the the person who was sort of the interface between those two worlds. Yeah. Sure. Um, but, yeah, no, the relationship between jazz and stand-up is, is one-to-one. As a matter of fact, the biggest fans of the aristocrats outside comedians are um, musicians.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. I guess I shouldn't be surprised at all.
1: They get it. Sure, yeah. they get it right off the bat. It, yeah. it, it, it's quite literally, you know, here's the song, you're the musician, what are you going to do with it? That's going to make it yours. Yeah. They get it right away. Yeah. No, jazz and comedy are very, very, very similar. They really are
0: yeah the good comedy, the kind we're talking about, yeah
1: yeah, yeah, and you know jazz doesn't always mean a hundred percent improvisation. I mean, you can watch yeah. Miles Davis on a great night and hear him recapitulate six, seven themes that he loves to play with, you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. um but uh, the core of it is really the same. The core of it is I don't care what the rules are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see what else is possible <laughs> and maybe some of it might be really really good and interesting. That's really what the best comedians are. Like.
0: Yeah. Well, Paul, it it's always a pleasure.
1: Uh a delight to talk to you and uh i I really do appreciate it and it is an honor for you to uh take any of what I'm doing seriously.
0: Oh, no, the other it's the other way around completely. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. the honor is all mine. That was Paul Provenza. His TV show, The Green Room, featuring hardcore comic-on-comic action, enters its second season this year on Showtime. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. That's where you can hear past shows, including the interview I did with Paul Provenza and Dan Dion on the book Satiristas. And it is pronounced Dion, by the way. Apologies to Dan for saying his name wrong earlier in today's interview. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back with more things to apologize for next week.